This is Discuss Your Truth, second hour here of the 5.14 mark, uh, post-meridian uh, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, there is a, look, uh, Anton Chaikin, former guest on the program, if you're not familiar with his work, please do check it out. Um, he links so much of how uh, the United States is built off of British practices, uh, economically speaking, um, the international strings, if you will, that are being pulled. Um, and you see that surface in politics, for sure. Um, was on the phone with him today, and he was talking about a... a he was he was scheduled to join. He's uh, We'll be bringing, bringing him on in a couple weeks. Um, and uh, he's talking about a statue in Philadelphia that was under fire from, from, from some of these protests. Now, it happens to be of a white man, but he owned a private family-run business. Uh, Washington Post, I think, put this put this out according to what Anton said. This story out, um, uh, locomotives, and he actually would fund. At that time, this is you know over well over a hundred years ago. At that time, um, African Americans were severely impoverished. Right, there was, slavery was an issue. So, but he would he would he was he would actually fund schools to to teach uh, the African American communities. Yet his statue, so in a bit of an oxymoron here, his statue is under fire. I don't know if it's been defaced or removed or, or whatnot. Um, so is it going too far? Is it going too far to uh, decapitate? I've been told, I haven't seen it, but I haven't read that this happened. But I was told that the Christopher Columbus statue um, in, in, on Biscayne Boulevard uh, 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 in Biscayne Park uh, had been decapitated. Is that going too far, folks? Is that going too far? I mean... Okay, argue about the system that we've inherited, uh, regardless of whether in Mexico. I mean, all of Americas as we know it. It's an Italian name, Marigo Vespucci, is is the theory that, that I've read. Um, America is a European based off European system, regardless of what country you live in, whether it's Colombia, Venezuela, uh, Brazil, um, Panama, Chile, you, you name it. All of these, all of the countries that make up North and South, uh, North and South America are European-based, period. Okay, the predominant languages are Spanish, Portuguese, and English, and French, if you're in Canada. Um, that's all European-based. And Christopher Columbus, in modern history, use that again, uh, I mean, unless you go down the Leif Erikson route, uh, you go down the Leif Erikson route um, it, with the Vikings and in, in, in the uh, Hudson Bay, is it? Uh, and in... In Canada, uh, and so I got that wrong. Probably got that wrong. Uh, then, you know, regardless, you're still European based. So, if you look at all of the um, all of the wonderful uh, uh, luxuries, if you will, that we experience, certainly in the United States, 
Um, this is all built off of European ancestry. Okay, and African American ancestry in that in that regard. Unfortunately, yes, they have that issue in history um, that uh, their people were enslaved. Okay, but that's that's not a reality. So today, well, not not in the same reality. I mean, we are all we are all slaves, regardless of your of your of your color of skin or the pigment of your skin. We are all economic slaves, folks. Period. Whether you're white, whatever you are, you're an economic slave to a very corrupt system. So that, that's, that's, that's what you need. That's what I urge listeners to, to, to get over and spread. And violence is not... It's a, it's a very weak form of... Uh, it's a very weak form of mental conclusion. Okay? Uh, it start, everything starts in the brain, Right? And um, in that, in, 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 as far as act and moving an arm or, or whatever it may be, physically, it starts in your brain. And violence, of course, is a, is a physical. So it's gone from your brain to your, to, your, to your physique, and you've decided to act. It's a very, form, it's a very weak form of, of, of mental control, violence is. Um, it is. Yet we continue to allow it to solve our disagreements. Really filthy. Very, very disgusting, in my opinion. Absolutely disgusting. Um, and, and, of course, not just um, not just a U.S. thing. Obviously, not just an American thing. Um, we have guests standing by here, but um, let me quickly mention, we just ended with uh, Nicholas Binge. Professor, uh, Professor Everywhere is, is his current book. He's a British author based in Hong Kong currently. Last week, Discussions of Truth hosted Temple Grandin. She has a doctorate from the University of Illinois. She curr currently teaches at uh, Colorado State. Uh, te uh, Temple uh, was was played, her, her as a person was played by uh, uh, Claire Danes as a character in the movie Temple Grandin, uh, released by HBO. And we also hosted Miriam Hennon and Dr. Hall again for Miriam now for the fourth time uh, on the program. Uh, Gerald Posner joined us the week before that, three-time uh, New York Times bestselling author from a Wall Street attorney, talked about his book Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning America. I urge you to definitely get a copy of that. And Dr. Bandy Lee, uh, whose book, another New York Times bestseller, uh, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, uh, from, a, from a psychiatrist who teaches medicine at Yale. She says that Donald Trump is simply incapable of mentally being the commander-in-chief, if you will. So some very interesting times in the United States. Let's hope we can keep things together. Eh? Um, so moving forward, folks, uh, next week uh, we'll be hosting William Arkin, his book, American Coup. How a terrified government is destroying the Constitution. A terrified, terrified government is destroying the Constitution. And momentarily, right now, we're going to bring on Gary Byrne, is a former Secret Service uniformed division officer under Bill Clinton. Uh, heading, getting into July, again, uh, uh, expect Anton Chaykin to be rejoining the program. Um, and, uh, and July 1st, uh, we will 
be bringing on Shakira Soul. I, I think she's based in Southern California. She is... I'm coordinating a discussion for the 1st of July. That's two Wednesdays from now. Uh, if I've got that right, I think I might. Um, and uh, she, she, she is a, she brings a, from an African American, she brings a more conservative approach uh, to the issue of racism in the United States. And, 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 and what I want to do, uh, Brian Knowles, who was with the pro, with us a few weeks ago, he, he won't be able to join us. Uh, but JP, JP Lindstroff will be with us, and uh, he's bringing in. Um, uh, he's invited somebody uh, who has a Buddhist uh, background. Just incredible. So I'm trying to pull on this panel discussion uh, for for that episode uh, to discuss race. Um, and look, I mean, whether it's Martin Luther King or or, or uh, 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 yeah, I mean, what, what did Rodney King say after he was beaten? The, his body was beaten. Uh, uh, like a baseball, unfortunately. Uh, I remember that uh, definitely uh, in, in Los Angeles. What did he say? He said, can't we all just get along? I mean, come on, seriously. Seriously, it just doesn't make any sense to me that literally, I mean, that's just me and how I've, in my world and where I've lived, it makes zero sense to me that there is this type of discrimination based on skin color. I mean, talking talking about violence, Right. Being a being a very weak form of uh, mental development or a mental conclusion that you conclude in your mind, um, so so equally is um, is is discriminating somebody just based off of um, their skin color. It's a sorry state. It's a very sorry state. But violence is not the uh, not not the not the answer. Um, and tear down these uh, tearing down these statues is ridiculous. So hey, bring on Gary Barrington standing by right now. This is Ian Trottier. Hey, it's Gary Byrne. How are you, Gary? Uh, sorry for the uh, sorry for the delay. I appreciate uh, you standing by here. Um, and uh, I'm doing well, sir. Um, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, doing Gary. Okay. You're. <laughs> Good. Um, Gary, uh, uh, take a moment and introduce yourself, if you would, uh, for listeners. I've given, I've given a, a brief introduction. You're a former Secret Service Uniformed Division officer. Uh, but expand on that, if you would. Yeah, sure. I, um, I was uh, four years in the Air Force. I'm from right outside of Philadelphia. I joined the Air Force in 1982. I stayed there until 1986. I was a security policeman. I then um, worked at um, right outside of Philadelphia at a, at a Boeing aircraft plant for about four years, and then I got a job with the Secret Service Uniform Division. I was there from 1991 to 2003, and then I transferred over to the Federal Air Marshal Program after 9/11, and I stayed there until 2016, and I retired. Now, Gary, uh, you've got quite a, that's quite a uh, quite a resume in, in serving in the country. Uh, 9/11. What were the what were the first thoughts that went through your mind after 9/11? Uh, a lot of guilt. A, a, a lot of guilt, and, and and I mean this like sort of on behalf of the whole country. I felt like we, the government, especially Congress, was sitting on its hands and worry about worrying about things that were instantly mundane and silly, and basically left the back door open. And um, and then and then a little bit of anger and then you know not I won't call it 
the lust for revenge, but I, I decided that my skills could be used at least as well or better in the air muscle program. So that's kind of why I transferred. There was a lot of, um, you know, anxiety in the very beginning and a lot of uh, anger. And, you know, the first couple months, the first month, say the first two weeks, and, and I'm talking about inside the beltway and literally inside, you know, the fence line at the White House, the, the mentality was, um, you know, we're going to take them off, take their heads off. We're going to lop their heads off. We're going to literally somebody on President Bush's staff said he was going to find Osama bin Laden, cut his head off and stick it on a pike. You and heard that? Do you remember that? I don't remember it, but did you hear that? Oh, yeah. It was public. You... <laughs> wow. So, and then all of us, the, I'm sorry, the term I was looking for, I mean, what I just said was correct, but the term I was looking for was the gloves are off, right? The gloves are off. And the gloves were off lasted about two weeks, maybe as much as a month. And then all of a sudden, people with a softer mentality, you know, with this, um, for the lack of a better term, and I'm not trying to insult any of your listeners, but a liberal mentality where, oh, you know, maybe they have a point. Well, I'm sorry, they don't have a point. So, you know, terrorism is terrorism. And um, and then that's when it got really complicated because, you know, we, we were sending the might of the U.S. military and the might of our intelligence apparatus going full speed in Afghanistan. And I mean full speed. And and other leaders of the country, and, and it's not, there was nothing funny about 9-11, but when you look back at some, you know, one of our biggest enemies before 9-11 was the head of um, Libya, Muammar Gaddafi. Yeah. I'm telling you, 24 hours after the Twin Towers fell, there wasn't a better friend to the United States than Muammar Gaddafi because he knew what Reagan did to him years before when he was involved in terrorism. And he wanted everybody to know that Libya had nothing to do with this. <laughs> they, were th they were throwing intel at the CIA and the NSA so fast, they didn't have enough people to analyze it in, in, their lang in that language. It was crazy. Interesting. Uh, so, so how did things change? How did things go from there to what was under the Obama administration where, uh, where he, ends, he ends up being killed? Uh, how, did, how did it go from there to there? So it's funny. Uh, yeah, I, I personally, I view the Obama administration from a couple of viewpoints. You know, if somebody was to say to me, you know, what did you think of him? I'd say, well, really the only thing we had in common was we both have two children and our wives are tall. <laughs> and, and, and that's really it. Uh, but if you were to tell me that I, I would have, you, you could have never convinced me that he would have pulled the trigger. And what I mean was that he gave the, 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 the U.S. military and, and our intel the authorization to go and kill him. And not just kill him, kill him in another country. And do it in a way, I mean, come on, you can't even write a movie that good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he, you know, and I and, and I do like, I was never in the special forces. I, I was in the Air Force, Security Police, and I was in the Secret Service. But I, these these people were talking about the special forces, and you name the unit, I've worked with them either in security or we've trained them or uh, or for whatever reason. And I, so yeah, I'm, I understand their mentality, and I'm telling you, that mission that they used to get Bin Laden was like a template. I mean, they've probably done—they've done twenty of them that nobody knows about, you know. So anyway, 
Um, what changed was you had a guy, a president who was not fond of some of the history, and this is my personal opinion, history of the United States. He thinks he thought we were too arrogant. Um, he, what a surprise. He, yeah, and he kind of, <laughs> you know, this really kind of upset me with him. The first thing he did when he got in the office is he went over to the Middle East and basically went on the apology tour. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of right. graves over in Europe that would disagree with that. So with that said, um, he kind of like when he had the opportunity, here's the thing. You don't want to be the second Bill Clinton, because what's the first thing people say about him once you get past his sex escapades is he had twice he had the opportunity to whack bin Laden and he let it slip by. And, and you don't want to be that guy. So whacking bin Laden guaranteed um, President Obama re-election. I mean, I didn't vote for him, but I'm going to tell you what. Um, they did it on May 1st. My birthday was May 2nd. And I got to tell you, it was a good birthday. Because I really, it, just to get, you know, this is my kind of personal take on um, I never went to the 9-11 memorial up in, in New York. I told myself... Okay. I refused to go until they killed him. So somebody took him out. So we took him out. And um, and then after he they did, I did. We went up there. And um, and uh, it was a good opportunity to square away some grief and um, and anger. So but um, so his administration kind of came down on two different sides. You know, somebody in there had a had a set of uh, clackers, <laughs> and then and then some of them were like you know, afraid to run over a bunny rabbit to save somebody's life. So it was a definitely a, a, a different um, administration. Let me, let me ask you a question, Gary, as, as you, uh, you're, you're in, in some, privy to some pretty uh, sophisticated intel. Uh, are you familiar with Chris Peranto? Do you know who that is? I do. So Chris has joined the program a couple times, and uh, you know, he's, he's, he, he's, he said just, just a couple months ago right here on the program, he said, he said, "Look, my guys, we we had a forty-minute window where we could have gone in and saved this guy's life. Um, what's your view, being you know being exposed on, on that high level of intel, I, uh, 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 U.S. military and uh, and service to the country? What went on there, in your opinion? What, what, which incident is that? This is Benghazi, uh, Stevens. Okay. So, um, yeah, uh, here's the thing. He's right." And I, I'm a little um, now. I've never met uh, Mr. Uh, Chris Pronto. Um, I think his nickname is Tonto. Is that right? I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've never met him, but I have met one of his teammates, um, Tegan. T okay. T. Uh, I went to a fundraiser with T a while back in Colorado. So the the way it played out to us. In, and when I say us, the rest of the country, um, they clearly had had the opportunity to. And, and here's the thing: I'm not surprised we screwed up the rescue while it was happening. And it's very important. I mean, four lives were lost. What bothers me more is they, you know, before you bring in the combatants, and, and I'm talking about um, Tonto and Tegan's team before they were involved. Why was our ambassador expendable? Yeah. How is it possible 
you know, and, and again, this goes back to Hillary Clinton's character. How is it possible that after 600 messages about the security, the British embassy pulled out the week before, come on, that's the message. Yeah, yeah, right. Come, the MI6 went to them and said, you guys are insane. And they transferred all this information. And what was Mrs. Clinton worried about? Getting elected, her daughter's wedding, and God knows what else. They ignored this, and it's almost like they wanted it to happen. Right. I've heard, right. You know, I've heard all the rumors about one of the one of the things they were doing in there was some kind of clandestine mission with weapons, and they were providing weapons to somebody. That, you know, the U.S. government, Hillary Clinton, and the CIA. I don't know any of that. What I know is is Americans needed help, and I want you to, as I'm talking about this, I want you to change the ambassador's name was Chris Stevens. Change his name to Kennedy. Yeah. Pelosi, Clinton, how do you think the security would have been then? Yeah, so, yeah. So. so why was he expendable? You think it was political? Nothing more? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Why is, why is, why is so many people, why is there so much human damage around the Clintons? I don't know. I mean. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's incompetence. Part of it is incompetence. <laughs> I mean, there's a story out there from a group of Marines that were put on standby. And, um, and part of the story that leaked out was is they were literally arguing for an hour and a half of what uniforms these guys should wear. Who gives you shit what they're wearing? I don't care if they show up in jock straps and combat boots. Get them moving. That's what we do. Listen, you're, when I was in the Secret Service Uniform Division, yeah. we had a fence jumping one time. And it was in the early 90s. And the emergency response team, two of the guys in the emergency response team at this time were allowed to go work out. Two guys out of six. Anyway, the, one of the guys in the gym was actually literally in the locker room. When the fence jumping happened, this guy threw his equipment on, no shirt on, a pair of gym shorts, and came running out right. from basement with an mp5 that's what these guys would have done for them and that's what the guys that were there working for the cia that team did but but you know it, it, it got worse as time went on they kept holding them up everything those guys tell you fits right into the typical clinton mentality they don't they don't have the ability to tell the military to do one thing and then shut up we saw this with bill clinton during the incident we now call black hawk down yeah. You know, he couldn't just tell tell the general what he wanted. He had to, you know, tell them some of the equipment that they, they needed, they didn't need. He told them they couldn't have uh, large air support, AC-130 gunships, armored personnel carriers, uh, because they didn't want it to look too military. Look, when you want the military to do a job, tell them what you want, stay out of the way. And it's the same with this. These guys probably could have saved more lives and saved the ambassador's lives had they rolled at the initial attack. Um, Gary, what about uh, past guests on the program? Is also uh, also work with the Clintons uh, pretty closely, like like yourself. Are you familiar with Robert Patterson, Buzz? Yeah. So um, Buzz was the uh, military aide to President Clinton. Yeah. And yeah, but right. Yeah, I, I was there when he was there. I mean, I, I remember him too. We weren't like good buddies, but we did. We, our, we, I worked outside the Oval Office, so whenever he came there, I saw him. I probably let him in there 50 times. 
And when I say let him in, I mean, you know, I just made sure he needed to get where he was going. And he had a very, those guys have a, especially Buzz's position there. Um, he was responsible for keeping the president's uh, codes for, for right. our defense system and our continuity of government updated. And um, if you ever get a chance to read his book, it will m make you want to cry. So Yeah, he was, uh, he was in charge of the nuclear football is what he would refer that's to. Right. That's exactly right. I just used a little bit more diplomatic way of putting it. No, that's exactly right. And, um, and, and you know, I saw that thing a hundred times. You know, it's a big leather briefcase. And, and actually, I think somebody opened it up and showed it to me one time. Uh, you know, it's like a computer in a bag. And um, anyway, so, um, yeah, uh, everything that guy says, I'm telling you, is rock solid. He's a good man. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Rock solid. Rock so solid. let's... So Gary, let's let's get into crisis of character. Uh, it uh, let me read a quote here for listeners. Um, the story explores what he sees as quote the personal and political dysfunction dysfunction of the Clinton White House, consumed by scandal and destroying their enemies, real and imagined. That governing was an afterthought. Governing was an afterthought. Afterthought. So these are people that would do whatever it takes at any price, expend anybody's life to get what they want. Is you concur with that? Your book is a New York Times bestseller, number one bestseller. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I saw, and it's what history tells you. You know, um, you know when I when I, I never would have thought I was going to write that book. I never, ever, ever. Yeah. People to me even before I was caught up in Bill Clinton's impeachment and and we can talk about that later when you're ready but when I was caught up in Bill Clinton's impeachment uh, even before that people would come to me and said hell you kind of have a fascinating life you know you should write a book and I'm like no I'm not interested uh, I, I you know I'm not a good writer uh, apparently according to my family and friends I'm a good storyteller and um, I must have got something right because the book did well but I had a lot of help I have a co-writer, Grant Schmidt. I had a great agent, Javelin. Uh, my publisher, um, um, Hachette and uh, and uh, Center Street, they did a good job, and they had a lot of patience. Listen, I you know I was I was like barely kicked out of high school. You know what I mean? Like I was not ever. <laughs> nobody ever used the word. Listen, English teachers that tried to teach me proper English. <laughs> Were probably when they saw that book and realized it was me, they probably were on a, ben, a bender for a month. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, because everybody, I learned as I was writing my book, and I'll go back to what your original point was. You know, when, uh, when I was writing the, the book, um, you know, it occurred to me that, that how many, I learned, you know, everybody has a story. Everybody, there's 10,000 people within 100 miles of me that have a great book sitting in a box. <laughs> You know, and so anyway, I, I definitely sat under a lucky star. So my um, so my unfortunate claim to fame was is that I was the first employee of the Secret Service to ever be forced to testify against the president he was protecting. I had to testify against Bill Clinton and his impeachment scandal. And I wanted nothing to do with it. I, myself and my coworkers, we saw everything that was happening. But our job, we're not, we're not moral compasses. We're not the we're not the thought police. We're you know, we're the protection guys. And the agents saw it on the road, and we all saw it at the White House. We saw it on detail. So anyway, about 24 of us ended up getting subpoenaed. And the first time in my life, I rise to the top of a group of 25, and it's in, <laughs> and it's them, you know, in this case. And uh, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Secret Service wanted to fight it. I said I would get on their plan. And I really thought it would destroy me. I thought I would end up like G. Gordon sure. Lee in jail. 
I really, or I would thought I would might end up like, um, you know, the security guard that found uh, G. Gordon Liddy breaking into the Watergate Hotel, who ended up years later destitute. You know, I just didn't see it going well. And um, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. The chief of the Supreme Court at the time was Rehnquist. And Chief Rehnquist reviewed the material. And what the Secret Service wanted to do was they were trying to invent, invent the protective function privilege, like a spousal privilege. Because of our job and how important it was, because of the proximity that President Clinton had to let myself and the agents be that close to him, that we should be exempt from testifying. And Rehnquist said, I understand what you're saying. There is no legal basis for it. We are, uh, uh, you know, a, um, he didn't use the term democracy. He said, we were a constitutional republic. The Secret Service is not a, you know, Victorian guard or the guard of the king. And um, he gave me 72 hours to surrender myself and testify or be prosecuted. So after about five or six months of, you know, lots of anxiety and lots of wrangling, eventually um, I had to go in and answer the grand jury's questions and tell them exactly what I saw. But it still wasn't over. Like there was a great relief, but you had to keep it narrow because there were so many other things that could have gone, you know, um, you know, there were so many other ways it could have gone. There was a lot of other women. I didn't want to have to talk about them. Wow. I didn't ruin everybody's wow. life. So anyway. I, maybe I shouldn't have. <laughs> no, that's fine. So, okay, so well, well, you're talking about many women here. I mean, and, and this is maybe sidetracking, but uh, what was going on with Monica Lewinsky? So here's the thing. President Clinton has his version. Monica has her version. At this point in their lives, they're both trying to make themselves look a little bit better. Bill Clinton is a predator. Wow. Any woman, any woman that's ever come forward and talked about him assaulting or raping them, I believe them. Because I, you, I'm, you know, 29 years in law enforcement from the Air Force yeah. to the Air Marshals, I'm good at reading people. And, and I've seen many, many people right after trauma happened. And I'm telling wow. you, if you can't believe Juanita Broderick and Kathleen Willie's story, and nobody's ever been assaulted. You know, if any of those women told that same story about anybody else in, in a police station, that would be cause to come in uh, for a subpoena sure. for arrest. It would absolutely be. So that's who Bill Clinton is. Now as he's getting older, maybe he's he's getting nervous about uh, having to explain himself. There, we got a freeze here with Gary. Right. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, she's trying to soften up her image. And, and here's the truth. They were the worst of, of two people that could ever... He was a predator. She threw herself at him. She circumvented... And I talk about this in... And actually, I think I talk a little bit about it in the second book, too, Secrets of the Secret Service. But she circumvented every level of security. She got she befriended people on the staff to get her closer to Bill Clinton. She was just an intern. Let me ask you this. There were 200 interns for Bill Clinton at that time. Can wow. you name another one? Can you no. name me another one? <laughs> of course yeah. not. <laughs> when it first started, I thought she was just climbing the ladder, right. which I get. You're out of college. You're working at the White House. Hell, I was excited, too. You know, it's the White House, man. I'm a kid from Ridley Park who barely got out of high school. And I'm opening, you know, I'm standing next to Bill Clinton. And then I'm training. And, you know, it was great. But so anyway, 
So she circumvented all the security. And like I said, I thought she was a ladder climber. And then eventually, and I, I tried to give them the benefit of the doubt because there were so many rumors about his behavior. And by that time, I knew he was having contact with other women that was, you know, that were, you know, and again, I'm not his moral compass. Date whoever you want, but don't, you know, don't tell every, don't, don't act like your marriage is solid and don't, you know, it's sure. just, it's hypocritical. But again, I'm not the hypocritical police either. So her box, her box, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Uh, police either. So um, anyway, um, so there was a lot of stuff that we turned a blind eye to and, and because our job is to protect them, protect them, protect them, protect them. And in some cases, protect them from himself. And I did. I actually got twice. I, I tried to help them and couldn't help them. The first time was I had Monica removed from the West Wing when she was an intern. I something happened that confirmed my fears, and Bill Clinton had a um, a chief of staff, a deputy chief of staff at the time. Her name was um, Evelyn Lieberman, and she was the first female chief of staff, a deputy chief of staff in history. So anyway, not that that really matters, but it does kind of matter. That's important. She, yeah, I liked her. She was tough, and I liked her because she. She was tough on me, which I like. I like it when you, you know, treat me like a DI, like a, an instructor, and I will, I will take care of you. You know what I mean? Don't bullshit me. And, and she was like that. So when she first got there, she, she ringed me and some of my colleagues out about all these people in the West Wing hallway. So one day I got a message to go see her because she was complaining about, she wanted to talk to me because I kind of unofficially became sort of the, the go-to guy um, for the, the uniform division in the, in the outside the Oval Office. There, there was um, one, two, three, four, about six of us that rotated the post. Uh, two, four, six, six or seven, maybe eight, but anyway. So I kind of became the go-to guy. So I went to her one day, she started giving me crap about it. You got to control these people. I said, hold on a minute. This is your staff. We, we tell you what the parameters are to come in and walk around certain areas. You say, you get, you tell us who to give access to. And I hand her the memo that came from the original chief of staff at the White House telling us to loosen up, to be more user-friendly. Uh. You know, this is right out of Hillary Clinton's mouth. She's the one that started uh. this user-friendly crap. Anyway, so, I mean, I'm, and I, try, I said, listen, we're not bullies, but we're the secret service. We're not the huggy bears, you know? Right. So anyway, so she did put a, she squashed, you know, she kept all these interns out and she, so anyway. So Monica keeps getting her, you know, manipulating the situation, her boss. She befriends Betty Kerry. She befriends Nelvis Bayani, then President Stewart. He takes care of the president right out, right at the Oval Office. She tries to befriend me, She, which, you know, I immediately saw what she was doing. She did befriend sort of some of the other officers. And don't get me wrong. They, they didn't do anything wrong. They were being, but they, they wouldn't, like, I didn't even, whenever I saw her, I just threw her out. She had no business being there. So I, I, I repelled her and got her removed for about a week. And then this is the key thing, two key things. <clears throat> when she came back, she had a blue hard pass, which means she was now a paid employee. And that pass gave her access. Her pass was just like mine, with the exception of mine had a, a special thing on it to tell you that I'm from the Secret Service and that I carry firearms. But anyway, she had access to everywhere in the complex except the private living quarters. Now, we found out later on through the investigation, and I, I mean, I knew it at the time, the only person that has that kind of clout is the president. And what he did was he told his friend, 
uh, Bruce Lindsay, who was a childhood friend, who was also one of his lawyers and, uh, and um, confidants, to get her, you know, to go to the secret. So he went to the Secret Service, the higher ups, and said, hey, the president wants this girl to have a, a, a White House pass, and they gave it to her. So that's the first time I tried to help him. The second time was later on when the, um, the affair was going on and they were making contact with each other. And, and anyway, um, when they were done sometimes, there was, there was, um, he left hand towels and tissues with lipstick and semen in. And the steward would usually throw them out um, from time to time. I saw them one time the steward come out and there were these hand towels. And they were they were very um, high end hand towels that the president used. It had looked like what was semen in them. They had presidential. The only people that wash these towels are the Navy stewards, one floor below. So they know where the towels come from, and and they're in the Navy. I mean, literally, they're called semen themselves. Sure, they know. Can... Yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> so. So I, what I didn't want to do was I didn't want the rumors to keep going, you know, and, and I was trying to protect the guy a little bit. Your job's also, you know, to protect his reputation and, and their image, so to speak. So anyway, I told Melvis to give me the towels. I threw them in a plastic bag and I destroyed them. Later on, I threw them in a dumpster. Now, at the time, I was just getting rid of towels. Three or four years later, when the scandal hits, I'm like, oh, shit, I destroyed evidence. Yeah. So, now, it was never looked at like that, but I would tell you that there were parts of the investigation that were pressuring the crap out of me. And and um, when I wrote the first book, you know, in an effort to kind of to to call me a liar, they, they tried to say that my testimony was different in two different places. Who's they? Well, uh, well, well first, it was the Clinton campaign, and then it was repeated on The View, the show The View, Joy Behar. Sure. And a couple other supposed lawyers that were like Democratic operatives came out and tried to say that I was telling two stories. And that's not true. When you're being investigated like that and you're asked questions, it gets confusing. And at one point, the lawyers in questioning swapped stories. They were asking about tissues or towels and then switched to tissues. That was a different story. It's not my job to unscrew them. My job was to answer the questions not give out any more information. I mean, it was we, we had such strict rules, and they changed all the time. Literally, they were the lawyers would tell us if they're asking about paper, do not talk about paper clips. Hmm. If they say table, do not say um, you know stool. If they're talking about a chair, don't talk about the credenza. You know. Do, do not give them anything. And, and that's what I did. It's not my job to tell these lawyers that were trying to, that were investigating. And, and listen, I wanted, as part of me just wanted to go in and, and get it off my chest and get it over with. I was embarrassed. I was kind of humiliated for the, for everybody involved. I felt terrible for Linda Tripp, um, who kind of say, I mean, they made her a, an evil person and so did Lewinsky. But the truth is she saved Lewinsky's life, in my opinion, and she certainly saved a couple of our careers. And um, so I'll always be grateful for her for that. Um, but, um, you know, it was a crazy time. Did I get off track? I had pulled me back on track. Well, I, I might throw you on a different track here. Are you familiar with, um, let me get into Bill Clinton's character in a little bit and what you thought about uh, his ability to uh, to lead the nation, uh, you know, regardless of political views. Uh, 
what are your are, are you familiar with Professor uh, Carol Quigley, who uh, uh, Bill studied under under at Georgetown? Um, <laughs> I actually um, I actually gave him a tour of the Oval Office. Him and about twelve other people from Georgetown. I gave them all tours of the Oval Office. Bill Clinton was coming back from a meeting. But the answer is yes. I met him. I don't know. Like I've never studied him. I don't. Yeah. I've never looked at his writings. But I actually met the guy, and Bill Clinton was coming back from somewhere. He was going to meet these people. They asked me. I made myself kind of the unofficial tour guide of the Oval Office, and um, I learned the history. I got all the information from the White House curator's office. Anyway, so he was in this group that I gave this tour to. And during the tour, President Clinton came back, and he actually came into the Oval Office while I finished the tour out. And I got to tell you, it was it was exciting for me. It was the highlight, kind of the highlight. I don't want to say the highlight of my career, but it was something I obviously the way I'm talking about it. Yeah, it was not you know these are educated people. I, yeah. I'm not saying I agree with anybody's politics, but and I don't know all their politics, but he was the president of the United States. Half the country wanted him there, and I got to stand. I'm a kid from Ridley Park who stood in the Oval <laughs> Office and told these these learned people about the history, and they challenged me on some of it, and I was. Right on. It was great. And, I, and I had a good time. And then when it was all over, Bill Clinton walked over and he put his hand on my shoulder and he thanked me. And and later on, like I got a letter of, of appreciation and, and it was nice. You know, it didn't it didn't help later on when I was getting subpoenaed six times. But, you yeah. know, yeah. it was what it was. Take the good with the good, the bad with the bad, pass the beer nuts. You know, that's I don't regret yeah. any of it. Yeah. <laughs> You're similar, similar to Buzz uh, in that in that you you, you have a you have a, a similar uh, relaxed aura about you. Uh, I remember that with when when Buzz was on the program, uh, very easy to talk to, very personal, uh, personable per, uh, person. But I'm going to ask you another question, and this is the same question I asked uh, Robert. Uh, you know, given given where, what we're looking at right now, um, the landscape, if you will, um, uh, on so many different levels of the United States. Uh, let me first say thank you for your service, sir. Uh, but uh, but do you have you ever felt at any time uh, in your interaction, whether it be with uh, Hillary or Bill or uh, their associates, uh, from a governing standpoint, do, do you ever feel while you were in service, did you ever feel like there was Perhaps, perhaps a manipulative string being pulled above them. Did you ever get that feeling? Yeah. So, yeah. Let me define. Let me define it. Um, Hillary Clinton was pulling a lot of strings. Maybe not above her or above the president, but but in some cases, yes. Because, and here's a good example. Um, how, how can I ask you how old you are? You may. Yeah, how old are you? Uh, forty-three. Okay, okay, you're a lot. You're older than I thought you were. That's a good camera. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's a better yeah. smile. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, good, right? So, um, so yeah, um, the Clintons are running in the early '90s to get in to become president, right? And and one of the things they said was right off the bat from Arkansas: vote for Bill, you get Hill. Vote mm-hmm. for one. Too, right? They were a team. She was always manipulating, pulling strings. And and I would tell you, it's one of the reasons I wrote the first book, Precious of Character, because I knew how incompetent she was. She was almost always wrong. She was almost always a train wreck. And this ideal that she's this policy wonk, she's not. 
A policy wonk does not use a private server. Anyway, let's mm -hmm. not get back to what you were saying. So one of the first things the Clintons need is they need, they have to divide the country to win. They're going around and telling, you know, at that time in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a little bit of a slowdown, a recession. It wasn't as bad as they, they had, they, they made it look, but the first thing the Democrats had to do was make it look a lot worse. Because by making it look worse, you made George H.W. Bush look bad. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're running against. So one of the groups they needed was, back then it was, they just referred to back then as the, you know, the gay and lesbian groups. And um, so they courted them. And of course, they went to Hollywood. And they courted them and they got, you know, what is it you want? And basically what it came down to was they wanted, the Clintons from them wanted donations and lots of them. And and they wanted votes and they wanted them, you know, and, and this community kind of got together as a whole and said, okay, here's what we want. Immediately, if you win, immediately upon entering office, you're going to do away with no gays in the military. You're going to do away with, um, of the pursuit of gays and, and homosexuals in the military. You're going to allow it. And of course, what did they say? They said, sure. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah. because they don't know any better. They don't understand. I realize that that's where we are now. But, but let me, you know, for you and your honesty understand, audience and you to understand, that's not where we were in the early 90s. And I, I, I myself, I mean, and, and I actually, I mean, you're looking at a guy, and I talk about this in the first book, Crisis of Character. My roommate in the Air Force, one of my roommates was gay, and I found out by accident. But it didn't change anything, and I protected him because he was a good guy. Awesome. And he was a great guy. Who gives a yeah. shit who he was? Right. You know? And so anyway, um, so they promised these people without knowing anything about the military. I mean, again, Bill Clinton was a certified draft dodger. So anyway. The no. Vietnam. So anyway, um, they get elected, and the best that they end up getting is Don't Ask, Don't Tell, hmm. which, which was a train wreck. And th that community was pissed off. And they, they, they actually said that they weren't going to support him for the second term. And of course, eventually that, you know, they got that worked out. And that ended up in another disaster for, for Secret Service. But I'll tell you that story later on if you want but um so my point is is that's the higher power you know if somebody came sure. in and said i want you to make it illegal to chop the well abortion is a good example i mean you know to keep pushing that mentality forward and, and, and i don't want to get into a debate about that but i'm just saying that was one of the things and, and um and there can't be any more of a, a more vital conversation than that at times because it's about life but um they um she 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 was had her hands in everything and everything she touched turned to crap. You know, she was supposed to the first thing she did was she tried to invoke this um, single payer health care system. And uh, they tried to do it in secrecy and, and all the conservative pundits at the time were ripping her apart. And rightly so. They were doing you know, they were messing with one fifth of the US economy in secret. And um and it ended up failing, and 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 she blew up, and and a lot of you know she went ballistic, and she blamed everybody but herself, and uh, that's that's who she is. That's why I wrote the first book to get that out. You know, like her, don't like her, vote for her, don't for her, vote for. Her. I didn't care, and and part of me, I mean, 
I wrote the book, I decided to do it, but because I felt like I was in a perfect place at the time to tell the truth. Now, I knew people would come out and call me a liar, but I was subpoenaed six times. I did everything I could to stay out of his personal life, and it just didn't work out that way. I testified because I had to, or I was gonna be prosecuted. Um, I took a polygraph to get where I was. Nobody has ever questioned my honesty or anything I've ever done. I have more out of boys and pats on the back from the Secret Service, from the federal government. I mean, you name it, I've gotten the award. So that's where I was, and that, and, and I decided yeah. if she won, like here's what it really came down to. If she won, so be it. If I was still in the Secret Service, I would protect her. Half the country wanted her. It is what it is. Sure. But if she won, and, and four, three years later, you know, some government agencies at the door, uh, you know, piling up my firearms in the back of a pickup truck, how can I look my kids in the face and say, I mean, my kids knew what I was involved in. They knew, you know, uh, I had to tell them what I was involved yeah. in because I'm afraid they would stumble upon it in education and schooling. So anyway, how can I look them in the eye and say, you know, maybe I could have made a difference? And I and listen, again, like what I did, don't like what I did. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Vote for it, don't vote for it. But I went, I told nothing but the truth. I narrowed it down. I didn't try, it wasn't, I didn't go in with carpet bombing. I talked about the people that were public, that were involved in it. I didn't burn, I went out of my way to protect some people who were complete assholes back then. But 20 years later, do I need to shit on their life? No, I don't. And I, and I, and I did it like that. Everything I said was true. But there were parts of stories where I left entire characters out because, again, do I need to burn everybody to the ground? No. So, so tragedy and hope is the name of the book that uh, that Quigley wrote. What I'm, what I wanted to get at a little bit more was, I mean, you you can throw into, and if you want to comment sure. on this, you can. Uh, uh, the the Mena Airport in Arkansas and the uh, right. supposed smuggling of. Uh, of of cocaine through Arkansas, uh, of course in Miami that was a, a major issue. Um, uh, but of course, then there's the ties to the CIA knowing about this and uh, and whatnot. But the 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 over the over umbrella here by many arguments, um, and certainly uh, Anton Chaikin. Not sure sure if familiar with him, but he's been on the, yeah. the program before and he writes extensively about some of these some of these economic strings that 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 that, that Americans don't seem to be questioning enough. In regards to um, in regards to links uh, to to Europe um, that may be uh, hiding perhaps or moving not necessarily hiding but moving behind the Federal Reserve System which is a which is a private system uh, and why is that uh, why is that uh, uh, why is that permitted uh, uh, to run uh, the Republic in, in that regards. Uh, it's not the U.S. Treasury, but again, it's it's private. Um, the, the Treasury is certainly not. Um, and so, so as far as strings being pulled one way or the other, is that uh, you know, is that happening? Did you feel that happening? Um, it sounds like it sounds like you, you you certainly may have and certainly did without pinpointing exactly where it may have been coming from. Um, you know, and then you've you've obviously provided, and we thank you for that. The the uh, uh, the the um, Hillary angle. Um, so let's get for a moment here as we wind down, Gary, and really appreciate you joining the program. Uh, let's get into some current current affairs. Again, this is Gary Byrne, uh, former uh, uh, Secret Service officer, Uniform Division officer under uh, uh, under the Clinton administration, working uh, very closely to, uh, with uh, with Bill Clinton uh, and keeping keeping him secure. Um, uh, author of Crisis of Character, Hatchet Books is his publisher. Um, 
what's going on in the state of your country, Gary, um, today, 2020? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different angles to look at. So, first of all, one thing you have to understand about me is I'm an old Cold War warrior. I joined the Air Force <laughs> in the early 19... Yeah. In the early 1980s, the Cold War was full on. I was trained by Cold War warriors that started in the 50s in the Air Force, in, in the different parts of the government. Every... I, I, don't, I don't pick up a napkin... I don't sit at a table in a restaurant without looking at the ramifications of safety, security, what's it going to look like if it gets out, who am I with? Uh, it's just the way I was brought up. It's, and, and it's, you know, the, I always steal from poor President Richard Nixon. They used to accuse him of being paranoid, and, and his chief of staff once said, it, um, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. So... Uh, <laughs> You know, so my, my paranoia or my concern about the image, the way, I, the, the way I'm perceived was because, I, you know, I worked for the U.S. Air Force. And so that's, that's the Cold War mentality. Um, everything, every, behind every door was a communist. Behind yep. every, when, when you're somewhere over, even when I was in the Secret Service, in the air marshals, we traveled all over or Europe. And some of my colleagues were a little bit loose with their behavior at times. And I'm like, hey, you don't know who that girl is. <laughs> you don't. You know what I mean? So, you know, there was always the honeypot trap and that kind of So anyway, so over the years, people have been trying to break down our constitutional republic because it's so strong. It's got so much money. And, and, and I can't listen. Again, this is my personal opinion when it comes to President Obama. I think the, one of the things he tried to do was break it down. I think he wanted us to be close to a third, more of like a third world nation. He certainly slowed our economy down as much as he could. He, 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 you know, always gave, seemed to give the military and law enforcement kind of like backhand compliments and stuff. I mean, I'm sure he appreciates the Secret Service's ta taxpayer dollars that protect him, but you know, by the same token, he did a lot of things that you could say were negative towards law enforcement and the military. Um, with that said, there's always been a concerted effort to knock us off of who we are. The, the Russians, the Chinese, and there's a certain group of Americans inside the U.S. that, to me, you know, whether you want to call them far-left liberals, whatever you want to call them, some of them don't even understand what they're doing. And um, so... I think that's what's happening now. It's coming to a head. And it's a point where we're literally fighting for... I mean, we're in a point where we're discussing... Listen, nobody understands law enforcement and the problems with it better than somebody like me. I've been there. I've done it. Um, I've arrested people. It's gone to shit. Uh, you know, let me put it to you this way. Do you know how to put a Band-Aid on your finger? Yeah, of course. Does that make you a brain surgeon? <laughs> There's a lot of things that you and I don't understand about brain surgery. And I will, so I'll never go and comment on it. So when it comes to law enforcement, because it's blue collar, everybody thinks they understand it. It's <clears> not <throat> simple. Most of the people you meet when you're a cop or in some kind of security or law enforcement is at the worst time in their life. Their life is falling apart. 
They've been hit by a car. Their spouse has been beating the shit out of them. Their kid has been abducted. Their mother just dropped dead in front of them and they don't know CPR. You meet these people at the worst time. It's not easy. You're, you have to make split-second decisions. We're at the point in this country now where we want to. There's a mentality and a momentum of disbanding the police. The, the blue line, that law enforcement line, is keeping you from the animals. And I'm telling you, they're animals. <laughs> Careers, not everybody who's ever committed a crime. I realize that, and I realize better than most. But there are career criminals out there, and I'm telling you, they are animals. And they can, when they have to, they can fit inside the normal society. But as soon as you give them the chance to be an animal, they will. And I, I'm sorry that George Floyd is dead. Um, and and he was murdered. But what you saw there was not law enforcement. That was not that was not arresting him. I don't know what was going on there. I will tell you. I guarantee you the first. This is God is my witness. The first thing I saw, I said when I saw that, and I was being interviewed about it a couple days ago, was that was personal. That was personal between Floyd and that cop. That's Who worked together, was. right? They, they worked at the same nightclub. Right. Exactly. That it came out the next day. And, uh, you know, they worked together, and it was something. They might have been in a criminal enterprise together. They might have not liked each other. That, that was not law enforcement. He died from basically position asphyxia. Everything that they were doing, except for the fact that he died, was was fine. Holding him like that's fine for a short period of time till you get the handcuffs on him. Now, we, nobody knows exactly what happened because you can't see behind the car. And there's going to be, a, and I'm telling you, mark my words, when all the information comes out and the truth comes out and it goes to the court and you see what happened, you're going to be surprised by some things. I'm not saying, listen, Mr. Floyd's not coming back to life. I'm sorry. Um and and they are responsible for it, but nothing is going to justify what they did. But it's but you have to realize that what they did was not law enforcement. That's not law enforcement. The other incident the other day down in Atlanta, where the guy falls asleep in the car at the, at the Wendy's. Right. Um. So let's change the scenario. The guy's asleep in the car at the Wendy's. The, the, the employees try to wake him up. He won't wake up. They call the police. The police show up. I'm one of the cops. It's you and me. Okay, it's you and me. I rap on the window. He doesn't stir. I open the door. He doesn't stir. I reach in. I check for his pulse. He doesn't stir. He has a pulse. I grab him by the head. I pull him out of the car. I undo the seatbelt. I get him on the ground. We handcuff him. Now, if you're not my partner and you're watching that, what's the normal citizen going to say? Well, that's excessive force. There's no need for that, in my opinion. Right. Okay. Would he be alive? Well, he'd still be alive if I pulled him out forcefully, but he probably, I probably would have woken him up. But he'd be alive. I, I would think so. He would probably be alive. That's. I mean, my point is, is you can't win. It. it, it there. I have done exactly what I just described to you. I have done exactly that. And, and they weren't even asleep. Be, because I know they broke the law. If you give them to, this guy was a career criminal. And the problem was, he's supposed to still be in jail. But they were let, this guy was let out because of the COVID-19. That's part of the problem. This guy is fighting to stay back. Interesting. Keep, keep from going for jail. 
He would have been. He should have been in jail for I think at least five more years, something like that. But it was significant time. He'd already been in there between seven and nine, and it's not the first time he went to jail. He'd been in jail before for beating the crap out of his his wife and kids. So, what I described to you probably would have saved his life, but society would say it was too brutal. Yeah. So you can't have it both ways. You can't expect me to protect mm. you from criminals if I cannot use some force. Uh, you know, when they talk about, they talk about, and you hear politicians saying it all the time, we need to make the chokehold illegal. You have not been able to allow, this is a chokehold. Do you see my hands? Yeah. You put it around somebody's throat and you use your thumbs to close the windpipe. That's a chokehold. That is illegal. Okay. Now, can I use it? Only if I'm, it's deadly force. Only if I'm fighting for my life. So if he's got me on the ground mm. and he's getting my gun, I can do that because it's deadly force. Yeah. Arresting him? No. But what you can do is there's it's not a chokehold. It's it's a it's you use your arm. They, they call it a chokehold, but it's not. You use your arm basically, and you're not pressing against his airway. You're pressing against the large arteries on the outside, and it, 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 and they'll pass out. Now that is a very viable tool. It's used every day. Do you know how many times that's used today? Probably quite frequently, I would think. I'm going to tell you without an exaggeration, it's yeah. probably used 10,000 times a day. You know where it's used? It's used in every jujitsu gym and every <laughs> in the in, in the world. In every jujitsu gym and every and probably most taekwondo. Um, what's the other martial art? In, in many martial arts gyms, certainly in jujitsu, and, 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 and a similar hold is used in high school and college wrestling and junior okay. high wrestling. Sure, yeah. So, listen, it's not something you want to do to your grandmother, but in law enforcement, again, if you want me to enforce these laws and you want me to protect your family from these drunk drivers, you can't expect me to do it with kit and gloves. It's a dirty job. Now, I'm not uh, listen, what happened with that guy at the Wendy's? Yeah. I'm going to tell you that more than likely when that goes to court, those guys are going to be exonerated. Because they, they, they he what he he may have quit and and he may be upset right now, but he shot him because he had a taser. And with that taser, he could have disarmed both those cops. You, that, that's, I'm not telling you that society's not going to see it that way, but I'm telling you a jury of his peers will, and that's who decides that. A jury of his peers, cops, realize, and this is why I never, in my time in law enforcement, I never liked those tasers. They don't work all the time. They're not reliable. I'm not a big fan of pepper spray either. I like, the, I like you know, verbal judo, physical handling, a baton, and a firearm and good training, and 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 diffusing diffusing situations is important. But again, this incident in the Wendy's, you saw the video. How do you diffuse that? If, if those cops and the the cops are, I mean, I, I would say if I was their training officer, I would reprimand them both because they took too long to handcuff them. They should have both grabbed them from each side, forced his hands together, slapped the cuffs on, over. But because they were trying to be huggy teddy bears, because everybody's mm. bashing the police, yeah. because they know their own video, they were trying to be docile. And that guy fought like a lion. I'm telling you, he fought like, I mean, you saw the video. Yes, yeah. he got away and he got the taser. Now he can disarm them. So you have to use the firearm. 
or run and give up and let him go. Now you've given him a taser that he can use on somebody else. Yeah. Yes. And again, he was a criminal that had been let out when he wasn't, shouldn't have been. Yeah. This is Gary Byrne, former <laughs> secret service under Bill Clinton to keep Bill Clinton safe. And, and so some really, Gary, some really, really incredible commentary. Let's let's briefly, and then and, and then as we close out here, if take a few more minutes, um, it sounds like uh, it could be interpreted here. This this uh, this 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 cop. Don't remember the last name. Ch is, sounds like a French name or something. Uh, uh, with Floyd, uh, there was more of a personal thing, and, and and that it was taken perhaps out of contact with media. Uh, to 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 make it sound like it's a racial thing, whereas it may not have been a, a racial thing at all. Um, it, 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 two questions for you, Gary. Uh, is is racism? Uh, and you're like you know you're basically a, a more than a top cop. You're one of the best cops in this country, former. Uh, and so, is racism a a, a, a systematic issue? Um, you know, insofar that. The NASCAR saying, you know, the, the the Confederate flag now is, you know, this it's you know totally banned. Uh, you know, and these statues are being taken down, and in this attempt to uh, uncover, uh, cover up or whatever they're doing about history, um, is it is racism that big of an issue? Uh, personally speaking, I think it's, I think it's not, but that's just me. Um, and then B is. Are these are these organized, systematically organized? attempts to do just that to cause chaos to cause yeah. i mean defunding a police department i don't care what city or what jurisdiction that just doesn't make any sense i mean trying to retrain makes sense but yeah. defunding it doesn't so go with it gary so in most cases as far as the police departments go in most cases there's not much retraining that needs to happen what needs to happen is more training you know they don't train enough they don't um, I trained even as much as we trained in the air marshals. That was my last federal law enforcement job. I trained, I was, you know, it, it, I started out as an air marshal at 40 years old. Uh, I left it uh, almost, uh, left it about 53. I was at the top of my game pretty much because I trained so hard physically on my own shooting, you know, but, but, but getting back to it, racism. Yeah. yeah. So, is it, is it systemic? Is it? No, that's not the issue. The issue is that these small groups that want it to be, they want it to be. They want to be able to convince you that because I'm a white guy with a shaved head that I hate blacks. Listen, I learned a long time ago as a young kid, <laughs> and I learned the hard way. You know what all skeletons look like? All skeletons look the same, my friend. What you came, I don't care where you came from. I don't care how white or black. I don't care how rich you were. The richest guy in the yep. world skeleton someday will look like mine. Now it may have gold rings on it and a diamond, you know, a diamond tooth, but it will look like mine. It's not about, and this is very important for you, for you, for your listeners. And, and, and I'm gonna just give me a minute to get you wrapped around this. It's not about skin color, religion, ethnicity, language. It's not. It's very simple. It's, it's third grade, it's kindergarten simple. It's about behavior. Good behavior gives you good outcomes in life. Bad behavior gives you bad outcomes. There's a certain sect of, sec of this society, there's a certain group of people that want 
criminal bad behavior. I'm not saying it has it has nothing to do with skin color. They want certain bad behavior to be acceptable. They're trying to change their way of life. Why why do why does the left attack the Second Amendment so much up until the pandemic, of course, and they all decided they wanted guns? Um, why do they why do they attack the Second Amendment? Because you can't do what you want to an armed society. Because an armed society are citizens and not subjects. Right. If you want now that you you know they they've tried how many times they tried to 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 take away our firearms. Now I'm not saying they're giving up, but now they're aiming at the police, and they've been aiming at the police for a long time. Um, and and you have people like you know you you want to talk about a racist? Let's talk about Reverend Al Sharpton, who mm. took a young girl at 11 or 12 years old, coaxed her to lie about a police officer raping her in New York City years ago. He convinced her to tell this story. Eventually, it was, it was he was he was found out that he lied. Al Sharpton eventually had to pay this police officer a hundred thousand dollars. That was a long time ago, because he was found guilty of lying. That's racism. Now, some people will say, "Well, that's okay. That's reverse racism. There's no such thing. Either you're either you're hostile towards somebody because of the way they look, and again, we all look the same." In right. the Our blood's all red. It's it's <laughs> right, and you can and you can take my blood as long as it's it's, it's uh, what am I, O negative? You can take my blood and give O positive and give it to almost anybody, regardless of what they look like, the poorest to the richest, to the whitest to the reddest to the whatever. It's not about that. It's about behavior, and 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 good behavior brings good results, and bad behavior brings bad results. If you continually act like a thug, right, and part of this society wants them to be able to do that, and and they have to corrupt the, they have to make it look like the police are guilty, and that's what they're doing. Now, listen, everybody makes mistakes. What do you think the percentage of of mistake? Let's just say that let's maybe frame it up like this. What do you think the percentage is of bad cops to medical malpractice? Oh. Gerald Posner, pharma, greed, lies, and the poisoning of America, was on two weeks ago. How about how many, <laughs> how many, how many people in this country are dying or will die because they use tobacco? Yeah, right. Well, and then the people, people that are hungry, that can't eat, or homeless. How, right, right. Some people still starve in this country. How many people do we lose every year to abortion? About a million. Mm. Do you know a larger percentage of those are from the black community? There, I mean, if you want to save blacks, let's try to reduce some abortions. Wow. Because the left has convinced minorities that this is okay. No, I'm not. Again, I don't want to get into that argument, but yeah. but that's, they are still lost lives. 37,800 37, people died in car accidents last year. Wow. But, but they want to take your guns away. And they're trying to convince you that all cops are bad. I'm telling you, not, not, you know, I, I have seen bad cops. And I don't mean cops that are, a bad cop, okay, one time in my career, I saw, twice, I saw somebody I thought was motivated by, by race or by skin color or whatever. Twice, you're saying? Twice. Once in the Air Force and once in the Secret Service. Both those work their way out. What I mean by that is 
this this officer eventually got promoted so high. He was a smart guy. He had to treat, you know, he he had to do away with it. He had to stop, he had to stop his southern boy mentality and be a good a good NCO. And in the other case was when I was in the Secret Service, I worked with an officer who was an African American, and he had this un this crazy issue with Asians. I mean, I never saw anybody so vicious in my life towards, you know, and, and, I, and I'm like, aren't you, you know, isn't it wrong to talk about people like that? And oh, not them. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so, but both these guys I'm describing to you did their jobs well. And worse, well, I shouldn't say worse than them, but just as bad is the cops that you come across that are just drawing a paycheck and you don't feel you can rely on them. They're not a lot of them, but they're out there. So I'm not sure which one's more dangerous for the public, but this ideal that there's something systemic about law enforcement, yeah. it's not. It's not. It's just they have to find a villain. The left has to find a villain. And right now it's hard to say the villain's firearms because they're all out running out to buy firearms because of this pandemic and, mm -hmm. and, and crime is going up. And right. they're letting criminals out of jail, so now they have to find. You know, now they're back to police officers. So, wait—is there any—is there any credibility behind these claims that Antifa is 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 behind that? And, and, you know, and, and there's these, and then there's these associations that you know a billionaire like George Soros is funding these. Um, in your view, is there any credibility to that? I think there is. I mean, I can't prove it, but but um, you know, con connect the dots. Um, there's plenty of video out there of, we'll just talk, you know, regardless of what's going on in politics the, and whoever's, regardless of who's president, yeah. or who was the last president, right. the head of the Democratic Party is Bill Clinton. Interesting. Bill Clinton Interesting. and Hillary Clinton are, are still the leaders of the Democratic Party. Um, so there is plenty of video out there of Hillary Clinton talking about how great George Soros is. So there's definitely a connection. Wow. Friends. Absolutely. Is, is you know, do I know that, you know, one of the stories they tell about Soros was that he was a former Nazi during the Second World War. I don't know that to be true. Um, yeah, but what I, as well. What I do know is that I have seen writings and I have seen video of him talking very hostile about our, our constitutional republic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He loathes us. Now, whether he lives here, I don't even know if he's a citizen. But I know he has property here. Um, what I do know is how cor corrupt the Clintons were and are, and they spread that, that that out. They spread that out. They made the, the, the you know, I'm sure the Obamas, were, you know, we, they were already had issues. When he got elected, both of them, President and Mrs. Obama, both had, like the Clintons, had already surrendered their law licenses because they got in trouble. They got caught cheating on a case, and they weren't technically lawyers. So they were already crooked people, you know, so that's who they really are. If they're, I don't know the extent of it, but, um, but, but I've got my concerns and, and, and look at what's happening to us right now. I mean, it's just insane. Um, you know, the same cops that everybody's crashing right now are the same cops. As we're speaking right now, there's a police officer in danger delivering a baby, mm. right? There's a police officer shoving a needle into somebody's chest for the fourth time, Narcan. There is a police officer 
sitting down with kids, explaining to them why they need to study harder and not his kids. And there's a police officer, there's a thousand of them right now. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's, a, there's 500 of them right now in the Secret Service, agents and officers, explaining to their spouses that again, they're not gonna be home for the 4th of July. And they're not going to be home for their birthdays. And, and I'm not trying to pull mm-hmm. at your heart. I'm trying to show you the other side. Yeah. We, are, we are not malfunctioning robots. Law enforcement are not malfunctioning robots. We are just like you with special training. And I'm just assuming, I don't know if you were ever a cop or ever in the military. We're just a, the same person you are with special training and, and insight. And, and, and we do want to do what's right. But we do want to survive. And, and, and again, when it comes to that incident mm-hmm. with the wind, mm-hmm. if those guys had been a little more forceful with him, they might have ended up saving his life. But you'll never get anybody convinced of that. And I could show you 10 examples of it, you know, just on videos of cop videos. How the TV show cops. Yeah. You know, once you get control of them and handcuffed, you're responsible for them. And the quicker you do that, the quicker you're safe. Gary, what is, what is your ancestral history what's your background yeah so um my mother's side of the family is lebanese they were christians that immigrated from lebanon um where they're from it, it's the borders changed a couple times <laughs> you know syria sure. lebanon syria anyway they're lebanese my father's side of the family was irish mm-hmm. what well, uh, given the direction of i mean we had and, and we need to wind down but this is a sure. great discussion i really appreciate it um uh, <laughs> Given the fact that Donald Trump uh, put up uh, basically walls to protect himself around the White House, I don't know if those are down or not, but we've got conflicting stories that uh, Seattle, parts of it have been claimed by uh, Antifa-like organization or Act Blue or whatever it may have been, I'm not sure, and then there's other reports that say – so we've got obviously an information issue. Um, what is the in – you, in your view, uh, and, and you just made a really critical comment here – um, that you you firmly believe, it sounds like, that the Clintons are heading that party right now, and it makes complete sense. Um, uh, given your understanding of the Clinton administration, that organization, um, and this kind of division, uh, there's various divisions we have, but this division we have, uh, and we've got Donald Trump, and and and, and people point the finger at him. Is this, he's a racist, and <laughs> it's it's. It's a, it sounds to me, Gary, like it, it could easily get out of hand here. How do you see the country evolving, developing in the next year? And what do you suggest for listeners? Well, so it is going to get worse before it gets better. That's my opinion. Um, we've got a lot of things going on right now. We've got this, this virus that, to no fault of our own, Um, we've got conflicting reports about this virus and how dangerous it is or how it spreads. We've got one side of the country wants us to run around with masks on outside, setting that aside. Um, we've got president Trump who has only been a politician for less than four years. (laughs) Good point. Anybody that you hear that blames him for something, they're absolutely lying to you. They are. He didn't do that. He wasn't here. So the other thing, too, when it comes to the White House itself, the president does not have one of the first things you learn as president. And I'm going to tell you something really quick 
for you and your listeners. And I have as much time as you want, but I realize you're limited. So I'll try to speed this up. So um, no, no president has ever taken office and understood what he was getting into. George H.W. Bush, when he became president after Ronald Reagan, actually said publicly that I had no idea what Ronnie was putting up with, Ronald Reagan. You know, I'm telling you that you don't understand what it's like. And, and, and President Trump probably didn't understand a lot of it, but I think he understood the pressure because you don't get, you know, you don't, you don't build up four million billion or whatever he's worth, you know, seven billion, whatever it was he was worth when he got elected. You don't build that kind of empire in construction in New York and around the world without being a tough guy and understanding pressure. Yeah. So with that said, he doesn't have any say in security. He did, the first thing, what I, the point I was going to make yeah. was the first thing, when you get in, before you you're, you win, or when it's obvious you're going to win, the Secret Service comes to you with the director, some of their lawyers, and you start signing documents, understanding what your responsibility is to the country, to wow. the Secret Service. And one of the documents you sign is that you can never circumvent your security without signing a document. Now, you, the president can't waive his security, but his family can. But you have to sign a document. And I'll tell you how serious that is. The Secret Service still has a document from John Kennedy telling them that he assumes the responsibility of using an open car. Wow. So, with that said, if they're putting up extra fences and bicycle racks to control the crowd, he's got no say in it. He's, when they put him in the bunker, it's because the saturation, or if you can picture the White House in your mind like a big kind of like a big shoe box with one end is round, the fence line, when a certain concentration of protesters or, or anarchists or just people, because the Secret Service doesn't care what your, your mm -hmm. motivation is, they, you, they just assume that everybody's hostile, and they have to. When the concentration gets so thick to a certain point, there's a formula. They've got counter sniper guys up on the roof watching with binoculars, just to, you know, and, they're, and they have... Uh, agents and officers around the city telling them what the concentration is. When there's a certain saturation within a certain distance of that fence line, that's when they secure him. He's got no say in it. Wow. And so that that that's the truth. That's what how the system works. Now it's not foolproof. Presidents have wagged the, the dog. Bill Clinton wagged the dog. In other words, he put so much pressure on the, the Secret Service that they started doing things that they shouldn't in ways they shouldn't. And it, and it got people injured in the Secret Service and, and some citizens. Hmm. You know, we could talk about that some other time. So it's up to you. Uh, Gary, uh, leave listeners here. Uh, yeah. Leaves listeners here with um, with with some outlook. What, what do you what do you recommend for for Americans? Uh, you know, I I I typically urge my listeners to not take sides politically. What I see happening is certainly uh, morally there's there's conflicts and that thing. But 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 what I find most important, and and I want to get your your view obviously. But what I find most important at this point in this juncture is that Americans again rally around that constitution, that ability to be different and speak differently um, and write differently and think differently, rally around that as Americans and not so much the political wrangling and the political divide. Um, identify yourself more as being an American and not necessarily 
a Democrat or Republican. That's my. That's what I typically uh, sure. suggest my listeners. That's the viewpoint. I. What's your view? And 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 what are your what are your words for 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 how Americans can? The country seems like it's falling apart, dude. I mean, no, it, it, it's, go ahead. It's not. It's not falling apart. Okay. It, we've got some problems. Yeah. And part of it's going to go. A lot of it's going to go away after the election, regardless of how it turns out. It's going to go away because the far left is only attacking law enforcement and only praising what they consider minorities because they want to try to get elected. Yeah. Soon as the election's over, they'll throw anybody who voted for them to the wayside. They always have. And I'm not saying both parties don't do it, but when it comes to the Democratic Party and what they consider minorities in this country— Oh, my God, I've watched. Uh, listen, I've stood behind the curtain. I've seen what the wizard does back there. And um, as far as our country goes, I think we'll survive. I think it's Good. the worst Good. hasn't happened yet. Um, it, I am very suspicious of how many all of a sudden these incidents that are happening with cops. I'm not saying it's it's orchestrated. I'm saying it's very suspicious. Um, how can you not, if you let out, 3,000 criminals out of a prison, how can you not think they're going to, they're going to, this is going to have something like this is going to happen? Two, I agree with you. What I suggest to your listeners is if you're sitting in your house, your apartment, your trailer, whatever, worry about what's inside those walls. Take care of yourselves, your families, make sure you have what you need. You know, I mean, I don't think things are going to get so bad where you're going to have to worry about water coming out of the spigot or electricity. Um, other than the obvious, you know, storms and stuff, but, 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 you know, if you're somebody who already protects yourself with tools, do that, make sure you got good locks, do smart things. You know, if, if something's happening and you're just a bystander, get away. You don't want to watch it. If, and this is the example I always use when you see these, and I'll, I'll try to wrap this up quick. I keep saying that, but when, you know, just to give you a good idea, when you, when you see a demonstration at the white house. There's three or four things happening. There's three or four different people. There's protesters. And we'll use Mr. Floyd, George Floyd, um, as an example. Yeah. There's people walking around the White House with pictures of him, of pictures of signs that say, I can't breathe. Right. They're protesters. They're protesters. They're upset about that. They think he's dead because he's black. I disagree. Well, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, well said. Then there's the then there's the anarchists. Now these are in no order. The anarchist is somebody who's being paid. I've seen these people. I saw them in the early 1990s in Seattle, Washington, at the World Trade Organization. They made a movie about it called The Battle of Seattle. These are paid anarchists to go in and stir up the crowd. And what they do is is they infiltrate, and not in huge numbers, but they infiltrate. They're just they're dressed just like the protesters. They have those signs. Only their signs might have a, a steel rod in it, or their signs might have a spike at the end of it, or their signs might be a two-by-two two instead of a, a little dowel. You know what I mean? Yep. Or a car, instead of a cardboard tube, it might it's be a, a weapon. Yeah. It's a weapon. And they have rocks in their pockets. And, and they have, and nowadays they're getting really smart. They have cups that look like ice cream that are actually cement. So anyway... And 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 their their apparatus has staged rocks around the area. 
So you've got your protester, you've got your anarchist, you've got your your tourists around the White House. If you're that tourist, right. get away from that protest because you're going to get caught up in it. You're going to get caught up in it in two ways. One, you're going to get physically pushed forward, possibly when you don't want to. Two, you may get emotionally caught up. Oh, my God, I can't believe they killed that guy. Next thing you know, somebody's pushing you over the fence. And this is the main thing I want your listeners to understand. And please, your listeners, tell everybody you know if they're going to protest at the White House. If you breach that fence, you have opened a can you cannot close. You will not be able to put your hands up and say, I give up. They're going to wow. let, let dogs loose on you. You'll be this shredded. Is, and this is all legal. They're going to let dogs loose on you. And there may be 12 to 20. And when there's no more dogs left, men and women that are going to tackle you like Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> and, then, and then if that crowd gets past those people around the perimeter of the White House are men and women with Remington 870 shotguns with a double-lot buck in them, and they're going to kill you. <laughs> and, no, and they won't even go to jail. And that is law. Yeah. And so if you want to stand outside the White House and jump up and down and demand your rights, you should. And you can cuss at them, and but don't spit at them. Don't breach that fence line. Don't throw stuff at them. And, 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 and the, the person, the one more person I want to describe is, is the protester who sees the anarchist and like, the, like the, the tourist who gets emotional, all of a sudden that protester does. And then that protester is helping push those people over the fence. And what you don't realize is, is all those anarchists that have infiltrated, for every one of those anarchists, there's at least one Secret Service person in there dressed just like you, clandestinely, looking like a thug, and when they get the opportunity, they're going to stop you. They're going to grab you, they're going to arrest you, and if you combat, you combat them and try to run, it's going to go really bad for you. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not describing my coworkers as murderers. <laughs> I'm telling you they're working within the law, and if you breach that fence line or you attack somebody in the Secret Service, yeah. listen, you'd be better off trying to stick a banana up a cougar's butt. <laughs> I've been there. I've done it. I've, I've, I'm telling you, give them their respect. Do all the protesting you want. Don't get caught up in it. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary J. Byrne, author of Crisis of Character, the number one, a number one New York Times bestselling book. Uh, Gary, phenomenal. Thank you Thanks. very much for joining Discussion of Truth, sir. And uh, I look forward to uh, inviting you back on the program. Anytime. You just tell us when you need, need me available. Thanks again. Gary Byrne, folks. I mean, that was an extended discussion. And, you know, we have done that. We, we, we have done that. This isn't uh, – I, I typically aim, of course, now since this COVID-19 issue has broken out, uh, we, I'm bringing on multiple guests. Uh, again, for the first three years of the program, uh, typically it was that five o'clock hour, boom. Uh, and, and it was the one cinema I'd have on two guests, but, uh, not, uh, not commonly since COVID-19 has happened. This program has, uh, been in more demand and we are now frequently holding two discussions, two episodes, and uh, also uh, three, three hour long, or three episode, three distinctive uh, episodes. 
uh, I will guarantee that uh, should uh, should all uh, go as scheduled that uh, uh, July 1st, uh, projected anyway, it may be pushed back to the 8th. I've got to look at the calendar. Uh, but one of those first two weeks there in July, we will be having a two-hour panel discussion with J.P. Uh, Lindstroth about race, with J.P. Lindstroth and uh, Brian Knowles and, and, and likely one or two other other guests. So that is being orchestrated at the moment. Again, I've got to check um, check schedule. Uh, folks, Gary Byrne. Uh, this is, I believe, the second former... So I mentioned Buzz, Robert Buzz Patterson. Um, he and Gary are two former uh, uh, people that have been uh, very close to uh, to the Bill Clinton administration. Uh, Buzz, as Gary had mentioned, was uh, the number one aide for Bill, carrying what was a nuclear uh, uh, football, and he said right on this program that uh, he felt like there were strings being pulled above uh, above Bill. Um, and Gary just said basically the same thing. Um, Gary not being as close to working, and of course, with Bill, uh, but uh, but being right there next to him to, uh, to secure him. Uh, the difference I believe is that, uh, Buzz, uh, was typically with him 24 seven. Um, uh, being his, his right hand man in many regards, uh, well, assistant, number one assistant. Um, so, uh, like, uh, I have also said previously on the program, we continue, uh, to simply receive some incredible guests. Uh, we start out today's hour at the 4 o'clock Eastern time with uh, Nick Binge, author of Professor Everywhere. He talked about uh, science fiction and uh, a little bit of literary uh, a, a literary adventure uh, in, in that book, Professor Everywhere, uh, including some of the technologies uh, servicing and growing in today's society, artificial intelligence. Um, and, of course, uh, we just ended with, uh, with Gary Byrne. Next week, folks, William M. Arkin. An American political commentator, best-selling author, journalist, activist, blogger, and former United States Army soldier. He has previously served as a military affairs analyst for the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. He's the author of American Coup, How a Terrified Government is Destroying the Constitution. That'll do it for today's discussion, second discussion here, leaving you at the 6.47 p.m. mark. I am Ian hamilton Trottier. You can find me on Twitter, find me on Instagram. You can find me at iantrotier.com. That's I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Until next week, folks, unite, don't divide, and be awesome.